And um, I look forward to uh, these conversations on the mysteries of God and, and the mysteries from his sacred hand because they stretch us out and expand uh, our thinking. I think they expand our soul. Uh, I think they expand how we see God and um, how we understand what he is about with us. Let's start with prayer and uh, thanking the Lord for what he has done and what he will be doing. Heavenly Father, we just praise you. We praise you for the sovereign majesty that you are. We praise you for the love that you pour forth. For the amazing plans that you have made that we can only glimpse. So I ask you now that you would take this time that we offer to you. I ask that you help us to quiet our spirits and still our hearts so that we might come fully into your presence this night. and learn of you in new and grander ways. Thank you for the paradise that beckons us here from this dusty place. And thank you for the paradise from which we have come. Help us to understand it more clearly tonight and celebrate. I pray this in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Tonight, we uh, are going to be peering back a bit into the misty recesses uh, before time, before time began, and look at a couple of uh, strange and mysterious items we find in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 1 and uh, in Genesis 3 and Genesis 2, uh, all of those. Um, so as I'm uh, talking, uh, you know, we can uh, turn there. In fact, we'll start with uh, the last verse or two of Genesis 1. But we're going to be looking at what God planted in the very center of uh, paradise. Why it's there and what it means uh, for you and me today what it means and how we see God and how we live our faith and live our life. Um, and look at what it says about God and about us as well. Because we see here in uh, Genesis that in uh, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 31, God looks upon everything that he has made and... Um, says, behold, it was very good. It had to be very good because all that God made came out of who he was, who he is. He cannot create anything that is contrary to his nature, and his nature is among many things, not only holy and righteous, but good. So anything that God made must, by definition, be good. And so with that context, then we go on over to chapter 2 and look at verse 9 and then we'll jump down to verse 17 and look at a couple of unusual things that he has planted there. 
verse 9, uh, chapter 2, out of the ground the Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. These are trees that we probably could understand. These are trees akin probably to the apple and peach trees and plum trees that we know. But then there are two trees that are next in line here in this verse that are trees unlike any man has ever known before. He just squashes them together in the same sentence. But they're two entirely different, separate kinds of creation. Uh, In the middle of verse 9, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Right in the very hub of paradise, a paradise that was good, he created and planted, if you will, figuratively speaking, a tree of life and a tree of knowledge of good and evil. And in verse 17, here uh, are God's boundaries that he sets. Uh, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, you look at that and uh, you wonder a, a bit why in the midst of a good earth, in the midst of a perfect paradisal place, why on earth would a good God have placed in juxtaposition with the tree of life, a tree of death. What is that about? He did not forbid the tree of life. He did not forbid them to eat of the tree of life. He only forbid them to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And we all know the story that once they ate over in chapter 3 of the tree of knowledge of good and evil all the earth changed and we will be looking at that in the next conversation on the mystery of creation we'll be looking at the changes that came to creation as a result of having eaten of this tree so why would he have put such a tree there we are It was the choice that man had between God who was life, who was in a sense the tree of life, and the alternative to God which was disobedience and eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. You know, my sense there is that had Adam and Eve decided not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, at some point in their maturing process, in their developing process, process, they probably would have come from to an understanding of the knowledge of good and evil, but have received it from God's hand and not from the serpent's deception. It's like we don't give keys to the car to a three-year-old. But in the right timing, they come to know these things. And had it come from God's hand, where he had given them that knowledge, there would have been no sin. But because it came from the serpent's voice, all the world changed. And you say, well, why such a radical choice? Well, in the spirit realm, there's no gray. In the spirit realm, the alternative to God, who is life, is Satan, who is death, who is evil. 
there's no other alternative. And so for God to have put anything less than a tree of knowledge of good and evil, whose consequence would have been death, anything less than that in the Garden of Eden would have been a lie, would have been a bogus choice. So yeah, it's the manifestation of free will. And so we see some very strange things happening in Genesis 3 as a result. And you all are all familiar with these verses, but let's, um, let's look at them uh, for a moment. In verses 22 through 24, Genesis 3, The Lord God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us. After, after they have eaten of the tree of knowledge, all the world has changed Thorns are growing, thistles are growing, poison ivy comes onto the scene, I'm sure. Chickers. You know. <laughs> Bees with stingers. You know. uh, the, uh, the chrysalis probably came onto the scene, and we'll get into that next time. But all the world was creaking and groaning on its axis because once Adam, who had been given authority over the entire planet to name the animals, to name the plants, to subdue the earth. When Adam, who was in authority over the entire planet, ate of the tree of knowledge, not when Eve did, by the way. When Eve ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, uh, she saw in verse 6 that the tree was good for food, and she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave it unto her husband, with her and he did eat and it was after he ate that all the world tipped on its axis and I think that has to do with authority it was Adam who had been given the direct authority not implied authority but direct authority from God so when he who had authority over the whole planet ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It was not just Adam that changed, and it was not just Eve that changed. It was the entire planet under his authority that changed. And so the creaking and the groaning of the animal cries of the prey and the predator that they'd never been heard before, when those sounds and screeches began to fill the air, that was the sound of a planet swinging from the, the kingdom of light and of perfection and of purity over into a realm of darkness and disaster. That was the sound of the entire planet moving on its spiritual axis underneath a different ruler, the prince of the darkness of this world. So when Adam chose by his free will to do something other than God, then he chose a ruler other than God. He chose the alternative to God, though he didn't fully understand that at the time. But it created a tremendous swing, and it changed all the world for all time. It changed the laws of nature and genetics and everything else. And so sin is now an inherited trait that we have. And that is because of free will and the power that our choices bring of switching our allegiance from one authority to another authority. 
So here then in chapter 3, verse 22, the Lord God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us to know good and evil. Now listen very carefully to this and tell me why God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden. To know good and evil now, lest, unless he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever... Therefore, God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword, which turned every one uh, every way to keep the way of the tree of life. So why did God kick Adam and Eve out of the garden? Was it punishment? Yes, so that they wouldn't live forever in a fallen state. This was strategic to the redemptive salvation plan of God. Now, what is that saying about these two trees? It's saying here that once they ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil... Their condition, their nature, man's nature, was changed to the dark side, so to speak, was changed towards sin, now fallen. And so that state is set. It's not sealed. It wasn't sealed because God removed the tree of life from their access because had they eaten of the tree of life, eternal state, in now their fallen position or fallen condition, the tree of life would have sealed the fallen state of man forever. Wow. Wow. It's only here that the tree of life is forbidden. Once man fell. So what we're looking at is the characteristic of these two trees. Two strange spiritual trees. Spiritual trees in the center of the Garden of Eden. And God was not prepared to lift the effect of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. From man. Once we came under eating it, it was in motion. Not to be lifted, not to be lifted even for the sake of his son, uh, several thousand years later. So the fruit of that tree has a lasting effect. And so, what do you see of the effect and the nature of the tree of life? If fallen, after having eaten of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which God was not prepared to lift the effects of it, if they had then eaten of the tree of life, it would have sealed the fate of man and planet earth both, so that there would not be a new heaven and a new earth. There would not be a new creation, a new man. So what that suggests to me is that we need to look out, think outside our box a bit about these two trees. I 
would throw out the possibility to you that these two trees are two spiritual laws that govern the running of the spiritual universe as profoundly as the laws of gravity and centrifugal force govern the running of the physical universe. The reason I suggest that they are laws is because the effects of either tree is profound, it covers all, it's universal, and in a sense, it's forever. It's not something that's going to be lifted out and aborted. It is something that is going to play itself out or last forever. And if, so both characteristics had to be in place in, in this kind of perpetual sense in order for God to have to remove Adam and Eve from the garden so they wouldn't eat of the tree of life because if he could have aborted the tree of knowledge and its effect, there wouldn't be any need for protecting Adam and Eve from the tree of life. If he could have aborted the effects of the tree of life, there wouldn't have been any need. He could have made his adjustments there. But these two trees affected the nature of everything on the planet for all time, as far as we can tell, and it's universal. Now, what you find here is um, that the tree of life is ultimately returned to man. Turn to uh, Revelation 2. And it's the, um, the first church of the seven churches of Asia that Christ is addressing. And in verse 7, for those who are the overcomer, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. To him that overcomes will I give to eat of the tree of life. The tree of life is returned which is in the midst of the paradise of God. My goodness gracious. When we go into the mystery of time, we will get into this um, more. But what we see here is that when Adam and Eve were removed from the garden, and notice, in, now that we've turned away from Genesis 3, <laughs> when they left the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Eden was not removed. Did you notice that? There was just a spiritual being that kept its way so that the physical beings now, physically tainted beings, could not re-enter it. That we cannot access, there's a chasm between us now and the spiritual realm. We cannot see it unless God parts the curtain. And, and we have access to a vision or some sort of revelation. Or Elijah, when his servant came and said, what are we, alas, what are we going to do? The armies are coming upon us. And, and Elijah said in, in 1 Kings 6, um, or 2 Kings 6, I guess it is, um, Lord, open the eyes of my servant so he may see what I see. And when his eyes were opened, he saw the, the rim of the mountain um, filled with flaming uh, chariots of fire, angelic beings 
greater, the army that was for them was greater than the armies that were coming uh, upon them. That was in the spiritual realm, and by faith, Elijah, Elisha was able to see that. But those are only infrequent, you know, outbursts of the supernatural upon this natural world. For the most part, we came into, man did, into a now physically warped and tilted and ruptured place. A place that was dying. A place that was filled with confusion and mystery. But paradise remained. Let me get over here on left or right for you all. Paradise remained. They just moved out into another realm, a physical realm. And what we see here in Revelation is what? In the midst of the paradise of God is a tree of life. Bookending our journey here is paradise. And in the midst of each, each paradise, in the midst of Genesis paradise is the tree of life. In the midst of the paradise of Revelation is the tree of life. And it is returned to us. So that suggests that our whole, God's whole effort here is about retrieving this fallen orb and bringing us back in to paradise. That we are the aberration. Eternity is the norm. We're just in this, this warp zone in which there is life and death, both. There is dying and pain and suffering, both. And we are pilgrims, aliens in transit from a place that we've never been before to a place we can only know by faith now. But we are in transit to there. Now look at the nature of where we are. We live in mystery. We live in a veil. We live in a place where Christ spoke in parables. And why did he speak in parables? Turn to Matthew 13. They asked him in verse 10 of Matthew 13... Jesus, why are you always speaking in parables? <laughs> and uh, he answered in verse 11 of chapter 13 of Matthew, because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it is not given. To those who are not of faith is what he's speaking of here. To those who are not of faith, it is not given them to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. And we could go on down and read because it's pertinent, but I'm just going to skip down to um, 34 where it continues to explain this a little bit better. All these things spoke Jesus unto the multitudes in parables, and without a parable he did not speak unto them, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. He spoke in parables so that those who did not have faith could not fully understand. It took faith. Now, why was that important? Turn over to 1 Corinthians 2. And 
And in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 7, But we speak, this is Paul speaking, we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory which none of the princes of this world knew. And I would suggest to you the, the, the real possibility that when he says, which none of the princes of this world knew, he's not talking about earthly princes. Remember in Daniel, when Daniel started praying and he prayed for 21 days and didn't get an answer, and finally on the 21st day, Gabriel appears to him. And Gabriel says to him, the, the angel Gabriel, he says, from the moment you began to pray... Your petitions were heard in heaven and his command was sent out that I should bring this word to you. But it has taken 21 days for me to get here because I've had to do battle with the prince of Persia. Now that was not a physical prince. That was a prince of the, a spiritual dark prince, a ruler, an authority. We wrestle not against flesh and blood but against principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this world. Ephesians 6, that spiritual contest between Gabriel and the prince of Persia, which is Iran today, was in the spiritual realm against the spiritual ruler that over, has authority over Iran. And he said, and when I go back, I'm not only going to have to fight against the, the, the prince of Iran, I'm going to have to fight against the prince of Greece. By the way, what was going on in Greece at that time? Does anybody know? About 500 years B.C.? 550? The mythologies were, the mythology was coming into its, its zenith. The, the, the Greek mythology, the Greek gods. So uh, who was responsible for that, that rise? The prince of Greece. So there's this spiritual warfare and when Satan tempted Christ and he said, he took him to a high place and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. He said, I'll give these to you if you'll bow down and worship me. Well, that could not have been a temptation for Christ had Satan not had true authority over all the kingdoms of the earth. And that is because planet earth shifted in Genesis 3 and came under the authority of the prince of this world, and he has his sub-henchmen, his sub-rulers, in authority, probably, over every nation. I, I will say for certain, over, uh, you don't see that in the scripture, but I'm going to say it. He, he has his rulers over every nation of the world. And so you have here, then, him saying at Paul in 1 Corinthians 2, 8, which none of the princes of this world knew, and I think that is these spiritual princes, these spiritual uh, cohorts with Satan who had been working since the birth of Christ to kill him. That's why you had all the, first, the, the, the boy babies under the age of two killed at the time of the birth of Christ. Satan was trying to knock him off. And so Christ spoke in parables so that they could, he, 